Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's eLearning, offering online courses for nurse preceptors like the Preceptor Challenge, with information available at aacn.org forward slash precept. Now here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barton. Well, this is Connie Barden, and I, I have to say I'm honored today to get to talk with what I would call a real American hero, Diane Carlson Evans. You are here to talk with us today, and uh, thank you for taking the time. I can't wait to get into this and pick your brain a little bit. Welcome. Well, thank you, Connie. It's an honor. It's an honor to be here with you and talk about what meant so much to my life as, as a nurse. Well, certainly are a nurse, a nurse's nurse, a military nurse, and you're also the author of a book, Healing Wounds, a Vietnam War Combat Nurse's 10-Year Fight to Win Women a Place of Honor in Washington, D.C., and I can't wait to have you share with us about that story. So let's get started, but before we get to your book and, and the memorial, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you graduated from nursing school actually during the Vietnam War, and uh, then I th think you went right on into the military. Tell us a little bit about that. That is the beginning of the story, Connie. Growing up on a dairy farm in Minnesota with four brothers, a sister, and a hardworking family. My mom was a registered nurse, and she was my North Star. I was so I guess just proud of her and I wanted to follow in her footsteps and it's 1964 when I graduate from high school and I'm hearing now about this war that's going on in Vietnam and for the listeners who may not understand or have known that the draft began soon after that as the war started escalating and so all around me my 4-H buddies, the farm kids were being drafted, including my brother in 1965. And he had already lost three of his classmates to the Vietnam War. And then my 4-H buddy was killed. The war is really something that for me as a young student in high school was just beginning. And I started nurses training in Minneapolis and now it's 1965, and now it's 1966. And the war is really beginning to heat up. And I decided I'm going to Vietnam. Wow. Just like that. I am going to go. And I walked the 10 blocks from my nursing school in Minneapolis to an Army nurse recruiter. I walked in, and, and I saw a poster on the wall, and it was an Army nurse in a helmet. And the poster said, the most beautiful girl in the world, a U.S. Army nurse. Now, how about that? I was very aware of this war going on and, and young men being killed, and certainly they needed nurses. And for those who don't know this, there was a nursing shortage in the 60s. The Army needed nurses, and they said if we would commit two years, they would pay for our junior and senior year in college for our uniforms our um, tuition, um, everything plus a stipend. So I went home, but because I was only 20, I needed sort of a permission from my parents. And I planned my talk 
we sat at the kitchen table and I said, mom and dad, I made a big decision and I signed up for the Army Nurse Corps. I'll go next year after I graduate, if I pass my state boards, <laughs> fingers crossed, and I want to go to Vietnam. They were stunned. Long story short, that's how I got to Vietnam. Unbelievable. So this now brings us to, was it 1966 or seven that you graduated? I graduated in 67. And 67. now you know the war is starting to really, you know, it's on people's minds. The war protests yes. are starting. And okay, I passed my state boards. I started basic training that fall. It was six weeks at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And our training back then was, you know, it's better now for military nurses, thankfully. And because they learned from us, that's nothing prepares a nurse for war, but war itself. But I felt not prepared for my basic training. The sure. three things that prepared me was I had three jobs when I was in nurses training. I worked at a nursing home on some weekends. I took care of elderly patients. I worked in an emergency room at Hennepin County General, which was all gunshot wounds and stab wounds and car accidents. And I worked with my mom. And don't ask me how I found the time to do all of this, but I did. Yeah. I saw a lot of trauma before I went to Vietnam. I was not afraid of trauma. I knew I could see blood and, you know, I'd seen terrible things in the ER prior to Vietnam. But you're going to ask me this, I know, and so I'll I'll wait for your question. But um, it's now late July. I'm at home saying goodbye to my parents. And my dad could not take me to the airport. So we went down to the barn and in the car with my mom and my sister. And I went into the barn and to say goodbye to my dad. And this non-emotional man who rarely hugged me gave me this hug and started to cry, tears coming down his eyes. And he said, I have four sons and I send my daughter off to war. What a day for any father to- I never uh, forgot those words. And sure. so now I'm off and I arrive in Vietnam on August 1st, 1968. That is just an incredible story in and of itself. And I know then you're in Vietnam for a time, I think it was about a year, you can tell us that, but anything you want to share about the the synopsis of that experience, how long it lasts and so forth. And then I know I've read your book. It's an amazing book, but you also talk a lot in the book about when you came back, you came back to the United States and you weren't prepared at all for that. But before we go there, just a little bit about the experience in Vietnam. How long were you there? Any Anything you want to share about that actual time there as a very young nurse? I was 20 when I started basic training. And when I, I got to Vietnam, I was 21. Average age of the nurses in Vietnam were much younger than any previous war. Like I said, nursing shortage. Uh, we were between 21 and 25. So some of us had some experience. Some of us had none. So I did have a little experience in a military facility. Um, the tour of duty for, for um, anyone going to Vietnam was 12 months, unless you were the Marine Corps, it was 13. They always have to have one up, you know. So we had a year ahead of us. And the, the synopsis, I would say, would arriving in Vietnam, you know, being on the plane and the fear, 
And being young, I don't think we see ourselves dead, like our, our sense of mortality. We're just so young and we're immortal, right? I, I wasn't afraid, I don't think, of dying. And in fact, I actually think I was prepared for it because before I left, I wrote a will and I took it to the bank and put it in a safety deposit box and gave my mother the key. So, I mean, I was thinking about my mortality, but my biggest fear when I landed in Vietnam wasn't guns and being shot at and actually wasn't seeing, seeing blood. Uh, it was what I measure up when some soldier depended on me. Yes. Um, yes. The fear of not knowing what to do. What, was I really prepared? Fears of what, what is ahead of me? Am I going to do it? Can I do it? Am I, am I up to this? And so landing on the tarmac and um, having the, the soldier with his bandolier of ammunition across his chest and his M16 and, and telling us women, four nurses on the plane and 257 men um, to keep our heads down. It was nighttime, get into the bus. We had armed guards all around us and it was hot and the smell and just that initial impression and then going to get my assignment and the um, 90th replacement center where I ended up giving my fatigues and my boots and my helmet and my flak jacket and all the things that we're going to wear for a year. And I get in a chopper and I'm the only, the chopper comes and it's, it's just for me. And wow. there's a door gunner, a door gunner sitting there and he never looks at me. He only looks at the ground and the pilots, they whisk me off and take me to the 36th evacuation hospital in Phong Tao. And when I get off the chopper, the door gunner finally took his eyes off the ground and he said, good luck, ma'am, and keep your head down. Oh my. Wow. And I walk in and the chief nurse says, um, I'm assigning you to a surgical unit. I was so happy. I wanted to be on a surgical unit. I knew that's what I wanted. Yeah. It was 66 beds. I walked in, it was a Quonset hut. It was a hundred plus degrees, no air conditioning. There was a fan on each end blowing and every bed was full. And she said, I'm starting you on the night shift. Hmm. And it was just jump in and get to work. And there was very little orientation. But I have to say this about us young nurses, because we were young, we had energy. Because we were scared witless, we wanted to learn fast. We wanted to have the skills to do what we were expected of us. And we paid attention. We were eager to do our best. I mean, all these guys' lives were depending on us. Sure. And so um, I learned fast. Pretty soon they put me in the burn unit when the napalm and the white phosphorus villages got, remember the war is escalating. This is 1968. We're bombing the hell out of everything, right? So we have mass casualties. When we arrive, our feelings are raw. I know a lot of the nurses just, said they they just went out back and threw up um it was just a way of i don't know dealing with the horror and the fear fear makes you nauseated sure and um after a while i don't know how long it took we don't have those feelings anymore we quit thinking about ourselves we quit quit feeling about ourselves we're here for those patients we're here for the casualties we have to get over whatever it is inside of us that um, is keeping us from doing our job. I really started to shut down, I think, in the burn unit. 
And I was really shut down when I went to the chief nurse and said, I understand that we have an opportunity after six months of serving to go somewhere else to volunteer. And she said, is there somewhere else you want to go? And I said, well, I'd been on the South China Sea and a 36 evacuation hospital. I developed my skills. I was ready. And she said, I'm sending you to play coup. That was on the Cambodian border, just a few miles. It was near the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the 4th Infantry Division there was being hit hard. I mean, a whole different kind of war. It's the jungle. And my patients are coming to me right out of uh, right off the battlefield, whereas at the 36th back, most many of them were coming from other hospitals or they were coming to have their DPCs and then rehab, either to go home or to go to, I mean, this is all in the book. So I'm going to try to boil this down and mean, paint a picture of one night in Vietnam, what it was like for an army nurse in a surgical unit receiving casualties. Because this, this in my book, I wanted to portray the myth, the stereotypes of, oh, nurses go off to war. They always have, but they're in safe areas. They don't, their hospitals don't get rocketed and mortared and they don't die. Well, of course they have. World War I, World War II, Korea. Nurses have always, always been on the battlefield mm-hmm. and been um, their lives in peril and facing dangers and rockets and mortars or whatever the warfare was at the time. And it happened to us in Vietnam. And this one night I'm going to tell you about, which was one of the most horrible, we were getting incoming casualties. We called it a push and we heard the helicopters coming. I called them a gaggle. If you heard one dust off, no problem. That'll be a few. We can handle that. You hear two choppers come in. One comes in, one takes off. And then there's a third chopper. You run your adrenaline. I was an adrenaline junkie in Vietnam. This night a Chinook came in. And it shook my hooch because the helipad was right by our hooches in our hospital. So um, the casualties are coming in and we start getting rocketed and mortared. So now we're getting casualties, but our hospital is under attack. (laughs) And the first thing you do is you protect the patients as best you can. It was kind of a joke. You threw mattresses on top of the patients who had chest tubes and on a ventilator and you couldn't get them under a bed. And the guys, you didn't have to tell them to get under the bed. They were on the floor. That's what they did in on the jungle. They hit the ground yeah. and they were pulling out their bloodlines and they were pulling. And I, I was running around fixing bloodlines and um, IVs and making sure, you know, once they were on the floor that they were still hooked up to life-saving measures. And then this young mountain yard girl, that had been burned um, circumferentially around the, most of her body. Her face was not burned and her hands were okay. And she started screaming. You were under attack. Um, this little girl is screaming. She's terrified because it reminds her of the village, you know, and her parents are dead and gone. She hasn't seen anybody come in to see her. And these, you know, one other female nurse and our four male medics are trying to meet this challenge of protecting these patients. And looking back, I think about what it took to be a combat nurse. It was all about how smart we were, how quick we were, how brave we were. And 
that we were it. We were all those patients had. There was nobody else to save their lives, to save them. We were their life-saving measure. And we better step up and measure up. We, we were not wilting violets like, oh, you can't send women into the combat zone because, oh, the men will be so busy taking care of the women. We women were taking care of the men. Absolutely. <laughs> and we didn't think about ourselves to the last second. I was the last one to go under a bed. I was head nurse in this unit. I made sure everybody else was taken care of as much as we could under the circumstances. And then I held the hand of that little girl who was screaming and I crawled under her bed and I just held her hand and she screamed herself to death. Mm. And these poor guys, they're listening to this child. The whole thing was just so um, traumatic. And it's something you never forget. So that's just one night in Vietnam. I can't even hardly speak after hearing that description and certainly can't identify with it. I've never been a military nurse. And I think certainly the jungle conditions that you describe are different from anything most of us listening to this have, have ever heard. So I thank you for such a vivid description. I really could listen to you tell that forever. And yet I want to come back and, and hear about this amazing thing you did when you got back. And we may, we may bounce back and forth because there's so many things I want to ask you about there. I remember when I listened to and reread your book, one of the things you said is, I never cried in Vietnam. And I think that had to do with you saying you shut down, you had to shut down in order to get through. And we hear a lot, have heard a lot about that from nurses dealing with COVID and that type of thing. We'll come back to that. But let's get on to the story about the uh, Vietnam Women's Memorial, because you, you came back from this incredible experience, still a very young nurse. Uh, I remember from the book, you said you took your combat gear and all of that stuff and crammed it in a footlocker and got on about your business. And then somewhere along the line in the next several years, you started thinking about this memorial in DC. How did that take place? Connie, it started with the homecoming. All right, we have to go to the homecoming lack of homecoming. When we came home, we being men and women, it was noted that only, only men were in Vietnam. And it was only the men that we were seeing on the battlefield, in helicopters, and wearing uniforms. That was the imagery being sent back to the United States through our media. Now we come home, and we women, I didn't look like a Vietnam vet. And so I could hide. I could hide very well. And I did. And I learned very quickly to not tell anyone I was a Vietnam vet because I too was set up just like the men to be humiliated in some uh, verbal abuse or some hostile questioning or would you go over there in the first place for? And I remember one of the things that was said to me when I was in uniform coming home on that airplane and getting off the plane and how traumatic it was to have war protesters in Minneapolis at the airport. And, and when I was grabbing my duffel bag and these two young enlisted men who, who had been on the plane with me said, I'll get that for you, ma'am. And this war protester says, let her carry her own damn bag. She's in a man's army. And wow. the GI just punches him in the nose and his nose is bleeding in a split second. And I said, you got to get out of here. 
And I went over and I said, you know, guys, we're over there, you know, defending people like you. We didn't start the war. We didn't start it. And and that's my homecoming. It got worse um, because we were treated with hostility, sometimes apathy. And we learned to shut down and not talk about it. That was our way to survive. And that's what I did after I married Mike. I had four children. I was involved in, you know, raising my family. And I could hide really easy. But in 1982, with the dedication of the wall, it was a turning point. I went. I was there. I had to be there. I had to find the names on the wall. I had to find Sharon Lane's name because she was killed in Vietnam when I was there. I touched Sharon's name. And then I touched Eddie's name, a patient I had taken care of. And touching those two names, that's when I cried. Mm. For the first time, I had never cried, not one day, not one minute after Vietnam. And my husband will tell you that's true. I knew tears wouldn't help. And I emotions were so stuffed inside that compartment of my brain that I had set it aside. And I worked so hard to let, let it not affect me so I could get on with my life. But it was affecting me. And after the dedication, I started having nightmares and started reliving the past. And every one of the patients I could remember came back to me in my dreams so I could grieve. I had never grieved over any young soldier that I had lost in Vietnam. So I started grieving in my own way, on my own, quietly. And then I heard there was going to be a statue to three men because of the controversy. It was extreme controversy by... um, men who had served in Vietnam who didn't like the wall. And so a compromise was met by the Secretary of the Interior who said, well, the wall can't be built unless these other faction of Vietnam vets get what they want. They want a figurative portrayal of how men looked in Vietnam, a sculpture, a bronze sculpture. And the design ended up being three men in uniform looking, facing the names on the wall, finding their buddies. They never mentioned the women. It's, we weren't even there. And I started thinking, and I went to the dedication of the statue of the three men, and President Reagan didn't mention the word woman once. He never said, now we finally honored all the men and women who served in Vietnam. It was all about the men. I went home and said to my husband, if they're going to have a statue to men, there has to be one to the women. They won't know we were even there. And he said, well, who's going to do that? I said, honey, I don't know what I'm doing, but I got to I got to do something. I just can't sit back. And Connie, it was because I was so proud of the women I had served with. I started thinking about them. Where are they? I'd lost track. I'd lost touch with all of them except for Edie, who I was in her wedding. And then Barbie, I was in her wedding, but then I'd lost track of her. And I thought, where are they? How are they doing? The memorials were supposed to be about healing and honoring and remembering those three things and maybe reconciliation, but that word didn't come out till later. It was about remembering and honoring the dead and um, healing the emotional wounds of war. And I started thinking, well, we have some deep wounds, deep, deep wounds to heal the nurses and women who weren't just nurses in Vietnam. So long story short, I attend a Minnesota parade. I see a, some sculptures there done by a Minnesota sculptor, Roger Brodeen. I call him, I contact him. I have a meeting with him in his studio. I said, Mr. Brodeen, have you ever thought of sculpting an army nurse? He said, yes, but nobody's ever asked me. And I said, 
would you work with me? I think there needs to be a statue in Washington, D.C. honoring women, honoring nurses. And he said, okay, well, what's the name of your organization? And I said, there isn't one. It's just you and me. (laughs) Wow. And he said, okay. He hands me a lump of clay and he said, take it home and bring it back and show me what you want. I said, I'm not an artist. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I see it. I have an image. I see a nurse. I see a statue honoring nurses at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And he said, go home and bring me whatever you can, your boots, your helmet. What stuff do you have that you can show me? So I brought him everything, the stethoscope and my footlocker. I went to the footlocker and took all that stuff out, my combat boots. And I said, Roger, I will not be your model. This is not about me. This is about all my sister vets. He said, no, I'll find a model, but I need your stuff. (laughs) So from uh, uh, September to February, he finished a replica, a maquette. I contacted some Vietnam vets, had a meeting in Minneapolis. There were, I don't know, three, four, five, six of us in the room. And I said, I have an idea. This is what I want to do. And I said, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not a public speaker. I'm a nurse. What do I know? Except I have a vision. And when we talk about leadership, leadership, leaders have a vision. And a vision is that picture you have in your mind of desired results. You can actually see it. So you have a mission. And as you know, the men and women who are listening today to this podcast, what is it in your career, your practice that needs to change? Uh, What can you do to effect change in policy? And is it going to take politics? What is it going to take to do what you envision that needs to make your profession better and keep nurses in the profession? We're losing them. Is it management? Is it overwork? Is it um, distrust? What are the problems? Identify the problem and then figure out your strategy and then don't give up. I wrote a strategy and I wrote a plan and I came back and we had another meeting and I said, I guess what we need is we need to raise money. How do we do that? Okay. The lawyer says we need a nonprofit and we need an IRS status to raise money. And it's called a 501c3. We need to apply for a charities, you know, so they can review our, we're a nonprofit, right? Charities review board is going to look at our books. Right. And we need a board of directors. Okay. So I identified people who wanted to help. Now we have a board of directors. Now we have a publicity. We um, introduced the statue to the world by having a public event. The press is there, the media is there. I introduce Roger, I introduce the statue and I say, this is our goal. We want to honor the women who served during the Vietnam era by placing a statue at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Number two, we want to identify the women. We're calling it sister search. Who are the women who served? Where are they? How are they doing? We need to tell them that we're building this memorial for them. We needed to co-opt their support. We needed their help specifically, but we wanted them to know we were honoring them. Number three, education. We need to educate the world about what we did in Vietnam. And to do that, we have to share our stories. That's the painful part, sharing our stories. Number four, that came kind of later, but I realized what we were doing was we needed to facilitate research on these women. So now after we are alive and well, and we're on this trajectory, and, and the press and, and other states are hearing about us, 
now I'm getting calls from researchers in universities and they're saying, could I talk to you, Diane, about what research has been done on these women? Do they have PTSD? Are they suffering from Agent Orange? Where's the research on them? Is the VA, can, how can we help? We want to do some research. And I said, well, you need to start because that's what this is all about. So we use the sister search base as a database. When they wanted to do research, they contacted those nurses. We promised the women we would never give their name out to the press or to research, but we would give out their names anonymously through our mailing list. All right, so now we have a goal. We have a mission, and now what's the strategy? So I sat down and I wrote my strategy and where I thought we needed to start, and that was we needed allies. If the American Legion and the veterans of foreign wars and the disabled American veterans and Vietnam Veterans of America, Association of Purple Hearts, Paralyzed Veterans, all of them, all of the VSOs, if they didn't support this, we were dead in the water. Now we have people we divide up who's going to do what. And the lawyers were doing their good thing with doing the legal stuff. And um, my job, I decided I'm going to the veterans organizations and one by one by one. And it was, it was grueling work. I was on the road constantly going to meetings to ask them to pass resolutions on the state on the local, the district, the state, and the national levels. Okay, that's a piece of this story, developing allies and getting the veterans behind us. These veterans organizations are big and they're very powerful in Washington, DC, because they vote. And all of our benefits and the GI Bill and everything came out of VSOs, defending veterans and demanding legislation, giving them benefits, compensating them for Agent Orange, all of these things came out of veterans organizations. Okay, it's 1985, end of early 86. We've got every VSO big organization behind us and they're helping us now with fundraising. That was a huge step. So again, in leadership, you have to sit down and really think about where do you start? Who's your audience? Who do you talk to about the issues uh, that, are, that you are challenged with and struggling with in nursing? And develop your allies and coalesce and get them invested in why they need to participate. You know, they, they want to quit nursing. They're um, demoralized. Um, they don't want to go back. They're tired. They're depressed. They want to find a different profession. And yet at, at the heart of it, maybe they still love nursing. They want to continue a nursing career, but they, they have to give up. And, and that may be realistic for them personally because of family commitments. And the number one priority, of course, in leadership is what is it worth? If it had been worth my marriage, I would have quit. But my husband supported me. I had the support from my family and my mother as the babysitter for my children. And so I had the support, but it, would it have been worth my marriage? No, I would have quit. You would have had to and make that, a choice. At the and that's why in my book, I give my husband so much credit. So moving on. There's obstacles that we have to defeat, and um, a lot of it's mean-spirited and it's anti—it's misogyny. It's anti-woman. Women don't deserve a place on the mall. They didn't deserve it. What did we do? They would say things like, "Well, there are so few of us." It was about numbers. <laughs> well, there were only ten thousand women in Vietnam and almost three million men. Why do they deserve a memorial? 
I listened to all of the debate and all of the animosity and what is their reasoning? Why are they opposed to this? And so then at the next hearing, I said, and now I want to talk about numbers. It's been said that we don't deserve a memorial because, well, there were only 10,000 of us. And there were, I said, if we're talking numbers, let's hear this. Around 300,000 men were wounded in Vietnam. Over 58,000 have their names on the wall. Those are numbers. And if it wasn't for us nurses and the women serving, that wall would be much higher and much wider. We were there to save lives. And that was the reason that nurses went to Vietnam was to help bring those men home alive. We touched the lives of thousands and thousands of soldiers in Vietnam, thousands, me alone, just the sheer numbers that I took care of in my one year, thousands of soldiers went through my hospital unit because that was 68, 69, when we had the most soldiers in Vietnam and the most names on the wall are from that year. I wanted to just bring some legitimacy to what I was saying. And the other thing that I always did, I just thought about my mom and the grace that she always had when I watched her as a nurse. And I prayed for grace. My mother was always respectful to the doctors. I called it taking the high road. Even when I was spoken to with hostility or it was mean-spirited, I spoke back respectfully. And I never cried. I was never going to cry in front of these people. I wasn't going to be, oh, that weepy woman. She just gets what she wants. No, I was pretty stoic. I was direct. I was firm. I was always defending my sister veterans. And I was defending the men who served in Vietnam. And even when I was being called this radical feminist using the Vietnam dead to further my cause, that was in a newspaper. And... I showed Mike the article and I said, I wasn't radical. I wasn't burning my bra and marching, you know, down, you know, and throwing bombs and, you know, protesting. And that was pretty radical. He said, Diane, you were pretty radical. You put on combat boots and went to Vietnam when other women didn't. So that was <laughs> good for him for setting you straight. It's so interesting sort of reliving this because when I read your book, I, I was just paralyzed understanding how this whole thing went down. I know it took 10 years to get this approved. So if we fast forward, it was finally approved and unveiled in, was it in the 90s then? 1993. 1993. Uh And I think I remember you saying that not only did and do women see this as a memorial to honor them, but so many men from that era also came to you and thanked you for making the women's contributions visible. Oh, Connie, I, I can't tell you the benefit of the Vietnam Women's Memorial. And I guess somehow I intuitively knew it. That vision had to come to fruition because the women needed this for their healing. They needed to know that their contribution was valued and recognized. And it needed to be a visible uh, presentation, a sculpture like the men wanted their sculpture to look like men. So people could look at it and in an instant, no, these are the women who went to Vietnam. These are women. In my grandest dreams of honoring my sister veterans, I never stopped to think how much it would mean to the men. Thousands and thousands of men came to the dedication and marched in the parade and they came to thank us. 
I was their nurse when they didn't know who their nurse was. Yes. Because they recognized me and they they came up to me and I could see it in their eyes. They couldn't speak. I knew that they probably had been wounded. They couldn't get their words out because they were about to cry and they didn't want to cry in front of me. And instead of giving me a hug, they took my hand and they kissed it. Mm. And they walked away. And it was their way of saying thank you. And it was overwhelming the amount of love and support that came to the nurses and all the women and the Red Cross women, the volunteers, they experienced the same gratitude. And of course, our memorial was not the Vietnam Nurses Memorial. It was for six months. I didn't realize all these other women had served in Vietnam and we started getting letters and they, and a whack in Vietnam wrote to me and she said, well, dear Diane, well, I was in Vietnam and I wasn't a nurse. What about me? And I was like, oh my gosh. There were other women in Vietnam. I never met anybody but a nurse. And then the Red Cross women came out of the woodwork. We changed the title to Vietnam Women's. And that was the best thing we did. This was about women's service, not just nurses. And then, of course, the male nurses. I had to explain to the men who were nurses and remember about a third. I'm not sure the exact number of the nurses in Vietnam were male nurses. Male nurses, you know, they had to fight their way in. Do you know that the Army Nurse Corps didn't want men in the Army Nurse Corps? <laughs> That's in the history of the Army Nurse Corps. So I explained to the male nurses that this was the male nurses. Their statue was the service statue of three men. That recognized mm-hmm. all the men. Mm-hmm. This is for women. And yes. then they, they understood that. And then having that wounded soldier, the nurse tending to the wounded soldier, of course, the wounded related to our sculpture. At the end of the day, The reason that we have a Vietnam Women's Memorial is not so much about me. I was the leader, but leaders have to have followers who make it happen. I didn't do this alone. Thousands and thousands of the men came to our, let's say, rescue. They defended us. They supported us. They sent money. They wrote letters to Congress. They wrote letters to the Commission of Fine Arts. The men got behind us and thanked us. And it was truly overwhelming. At the culmination, at the dedication, when all the men came, the women, the nurses in particular, were overwhelmed. All the guys, went, were you my nurse? I was wounded and, and like, we can remember them? No. <laughs> of course. Maybe some. There were some. There's some magic going on. There have been nurses that have reacquainted with their patients because of figuring things out at the Vietnam Women's Memorial. So that's the good news. You know what I can tell you, Diane, and certainly any nurse listening has has had a similar, although certainly probably not as dramatic a thing, where you're just in your your ICU one day and in comes a, a visitor and you don't know who they are and you find out, oh, that was the patient in room four who was in there for six weeks and we never even knew. And they come back to thank nurses. And so what you're describing is what happens to us on occasion in the non-military world and, and so great that you could make that happen. Let me just ask you to draw some parallels because you've given us an incredible uh, summary of leadership just in listening to your story and how you outlined about having a vision, looking at what it will take, making a strategy, enrolling allies, dividing up the work. We need leaders. We need followers, all of that kind of things. I want to ask you one thing because so much of what was in your book and what you've described in a way, parallels with what nurses have said in these last couple of years related to COVID, when uh, taking care of patients with COVID. And I, I heard you say, we had fears. Will I measure up? Can I do it? 
you said I was scared witless. And I've heard a lot of nurses who were thrown into these units taking care of COVID patients, especially when we didn't even know what COVID was. I had to learn fast. We had to do our best with what we had. Are there any parallels that you see between, or learnings, I guess, that you would want to share as we wrap up about things we can learn from any extreme kind of situation that you want to share with those who are listening today? Oh, Connie, I would love to, because during COVID, I I was reliving a lot of Vietnam, and I was following what our nurses were going through, and my heart went out to them. I'll tell you some reasons why. So you've heard my story about Vietnam, and yes, I was a critical care nurse. And while I was a critical care nurse, I couldn't shoot back to anyone because we weren't considered warriors. Nurses couldn't carry weapons. We weren't supposed to know how to shoot anybody, which was fine with me. I didn't want to carry a weapon in Vietnam like nurses do today. They're trained in the military. They're warriors. We were called nurses, and I'm proud of our warriors today, and they deserve that title. But we we couldn't shoot back, but we could be shot at. So Mm -hmm. we're in Vietnam, and we are in peril. We can be killed at any moment by a rocket and mortar. And women did die in Vietnam. So let's talk about the nurses today in the United States during COVID. They're terrified of getting COVID. They have to go home to maybe a baby, a child, a husband, a family, an elderly parent. They may pass COVID on to someone they love. They are concerned for their own health and well-being and welfare, not a bullet, but a virus. My heart went out to them because in Vietnam, we did not have to even once in one year did I have to deal with a grieving mother or father or loved one, a spouse. We didn't deal with the families coming into our unit crying. What can I do? You know, and then dealing with them, having to take time aside from caring for your patients to caring for the family. So now they have families they're dealing with and they have to go home to their own family. And if they have children, they're getting kids ready for school the next day and they're tired. And when do they have time to go to the grocery store and the stress and the strain on their marriage, perhaps? Uh, all of the above, the stressors for nurses during COVID were enormous. I related, us nurses in Vietnam were there for that soldier when he passed. We were their loved one. We were the voice that, that was with them till the very end, holding their hand, holding them. The nurses during COVID were doing the same. Yes. Because their loved one couldn't come into the ICU unit. My heart just, it was breaking for the patient and the family that they couldn't see each other and be together and hugging in that room because of COVID and masks and, you know, all of the above. And so that nurse was the last person to be with that patient and that last voice. I think the responsibility that was put on the medical community to COVID during this pandemic was beyond measuring. You can certainly see why many of them just had to quit, had to leave for all kinds of reasons, not just exhaustion, but the strain on their family and the worry of the worry of passing on this horrible virus. Okay, let's talk about resilience. Let's talk about stamina. For the nurses who had to make the choice, it's my career or it's my family. Um, those are hard choices and we make them for what's best for us. We pick our battles. That's just the nature of humanity. I never thought about myself being resilient, but the reason I could get through the Vietnam Women's Memorial was this. 
in Vietnam, I never gave up on a patient. I never once thought, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. It never occurred to me. I never gave up on a patient. And when I founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial, through a lot of support from my family and my allies, of course, I, I thought if I could do what I did in Vietnam, I can do this because nobody's going to die. If I make a mistake, if I fail, nobody's died. Like in Vietnam, my worst fear, if somebody died on my watch, it's my fault. Us nurses felt that guilt in Vietnam. If someone died on our watch, it was our fault because we were all they had. We missed something. Why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? If we'd only had another generator, if we'd only had this supply, if we'd only had more blood, could have saved this patient. So all these ifs and all this blame and all this weight of responsibility that we nurses have. So I don't have the answers for the nurses uh, who are trying and we're trying to survive the performance that was expected of them and management telling them you have to work an extra shift, you have to work extra hours or else. I think you do. And I think as, as we wrap up, I think you have said a lot of the answers. Your incredible story and the parallels that we see with nurses, and even if it isn't COVID, ICU nurses, I've never known an ICU nurse to give up on a patient either. Different circumstances, but they, they don't give up when they're there in the moment caring for patients. I think what you've shared with us is how important it is eventually to not, as you would say, stuff everything in your footlocker, whether it's a week later, a month later, or in your case, 12 years later, we've got to get those feelings out. We've got to look at the things that have caused us pain, and we've got to deal with those. And in your case, you created something larger than life, which is a movement that, you know, after a decade, caused the creation of the Vietnam Women's Memorial. Not everyone is going to do anything that grand. But I think in sharing with us about your experiences really have talked about what we all need to hear with the challenges in life and specific to nursing. So Diane Carlson Evans, I've just been mesmerized listening to you and talking to you. You've been called an unlikely hero. I would call you an accidental leader who just has given us a whole mini course on leadership. Thank you so much for sharing from the heart. I can hear in your voice that you revisit those Vietnam experiences probably every time you tell this story. And uh, thank you so much for being willing to go there with us today and talk to our community of nurses about your amazing leadership and amazing experience. Connie, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to share the stories of my sister veterans and um, just for everyone listening to know that um, be proud, be proud to be a nurse. It's the most trusted profession, right? Sage advice from a, an honorable hero, Diane Carlson Evans, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's Preceptor Challenge with information available at aacn.org forward slash precept. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.